All right, if you have a Bible, if you turn then to Romans chapter 8, and what I'm going to speak on the title of the message, even though you can't do it in one message, is the grace of God. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your presence here with us amongst your people. We ask you, Lord, to give us humble hearts and continue, Lord, to do a work in us. Uh, And thank you that we can come to you when we miss it and you'll cleanse us by your blood, set us back on our feet. And I ask you'll speak to us tonight, Lord, through your word and, and speak clearly and encourage us. And we just thank you for your faithfulness, Father. You just are faithful and you do watch over us and you are a good God. So we do thank you for all those things. And we thank, look forward to hearing your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're briefly going to read Romans 8.32, and then we're going to come back to it. Actually, verses 31 and 32, and then we're going to come back towards the end of the message. Romans 8.31, it says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, then who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely, that's graciously, it's the word for grace, graciously give us all things. I want to kind of go back to Genesis. You don't need to necessarily turn back to Genesis, but that's where the grace of God is first seen. It starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. So in the garden, Satan, he knew something. He knew that God had appointed Adam to be the head of a race head of a race of men. And so what was his design? He's through sin, he's wanting to get mankind to have to serve him. He wanted to be the God of this world with all of mankind serving him. So we know the story. I'm not telling you something you don't know. But through the serpent, he tempted Adam and Eve to deny the goodness of God, the love of God, and said, just eat of this one tree. That's the only thing he's asked you to obey. And he gets them to do that. And God had clearly given them the consequences if they did that. If you eat of that tree, he says, you will surely die. And the devil said, no, that's not what he meant. You're not surely going to die. But guess what? That's what happened. That's what they deserve, death, physical and spiritual separation from God. And so because of that, here comes the Lord every day. When things were good and they're innocent and they hadn't disobeyed him and they're in fellowship, every day he'd come in there and he would visit with them and walk with them and talk with them and they're looking forward to seeing him every day. Isn't that the way for us when you know things are right between you and the Lord? You're not avoiding him, are you? But now when sin comes in, what's the first thing they do? It says they hid themselves. They covered themselves because the one thing that sin brings is shame and guilt. And that's what they had. They knew they were unworthy. And I liked what a guy said. They knew that God loved them. They didn't wonder about that in their innocent state, in their state before they rebelled against him. But what they didn't know is they didn't know that he would love them when they were guilty. And so what are they doing? They're hiding from him. Because they realized we deserve justice and punishment. They knew they didn't deserve love. They didn't know what God was going to do. And they're hiding themselves. Isn't that what your kids do a lot of times? When they know they have done something wrong and they know dad's coming home, it's like, where are they? And they're hiding behind a couch somewhere. That's kind of what they were doing here. But here is where we see the grace of God. Because what did he do? They didn't know he'd do this. He comes seeking them, didn't he? Adam, where art thou? He knew where he was. 
but he's seeking him. Where art thou? And that is the grace of God because he takes the initiative in every single case of salvation in the Bible, of true conversion. If you would turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. I don't want to see, there's two cases here in Acts 7. It keeps us from having to flip around a lot of other places. We're saying God has to appear. He has to break in on our lives. And that's what he does. And so in Acts 7, 1 and 2, we see that here with Abraham. This is Stephen. He's addressing the Sanhedrin. He's given a history of Israel. And he said, then said the high priest, they're asking Stephen, are these things so? Are you trying to upturn our religion? And here's what Stephen's answer was. He says, men and brethren and fathers, hearken. Look what he says. The God of glory did what? He appeared unto our father Abraham. And when did he do that? When he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon and said unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I will show thee. And so here's Abraham. He's living in the land of idolatry. It was the most pagan place you could be, Ur of Chaldees. And he's happy in his way. He's not looking for anything. And what does it say? God in his glory appeared to him broke in on him and said, I want you to get out and follow me. Get up and follow me. But God broke in on his life. He wasn't looking for God. He was probably totally happy. His father was wealthy. What did he need? He says, no, I want you to leave all of that. The God of glory appeared. And if you look over in verse 30, so we got Moses has been, had he got driven out of Egypt, he's on the backside of the desert as a shepherd. And we have here, did that for 40 years, it says in the beginning of verse 30. And when 40 years were expired, here's that word again, there appeared out of nowhere. Moses was minding his own sheep herder business. He wasn't looking for anything. And it says, appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw that, he wondered at the sight. What's going on here? And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and couldn't look, durst not behold. And then said the Lord unto him, the pre-incarnate Christ, God himself, put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. And he says, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. And I have heard their groaning. And I am appearing. I'm coming down to do what? Deliver them. God is breaking in on them to deliver them. And now come I, I will send thee unto Egypt. And so God breaks in, in our lives. In our distress, we didn't know we needed him. So turn over just a couple more chapters. We talked about this. It's been a few months. It's been a while, maybe a year. Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Saul, oh, what's he doing? Is he looking for the Lord? Is he looking for Jesus? He's yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And he's on a mission to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last thing in the world he thinks is going to happen is that the Lord's going to appear to him. That's not what he's looking for. He thinks he's doing God's will. And it says in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly 
God broke into his life. There shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, not the one you're looking for, but here I am, whom you persecute. And it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And I'm saying that's the way it is. All true conversions. It's God breaking into the lives of unsuspecting sinners. That's the way it is. I mean, I'm telling you, that's the way it was for me. That was the last thing on my mind when I was 21 years old, that I was going to turn from all the things I was doing, enjoying myself, just got a nice job, all the things that went along with that. I'm thinking, man, I got it made, so to speak. I've had a bright future ahead of me as far as the world was concerned. And God broke in and made me miserable. And that's the way it works. He breaks in. The South Pacific and the Cannibal Islands of Aramanga back in 1839. Cannibals lived there. A cannibal island. The first missionary that was ever sent there, his name was John Williams. John Williams landed on the shore of this island of these cannibals, and he lived for one half hour before they killed him. So the devil is saying, hey, this is where God's grace is coming in. He's wanting man, isn't he? And he's saying, I got this prey on this island, and you're not going to come here and disturb the peace. And I got these people under my wings, and they're happy, so to speak. But listen, what happened? We're saying God breaks in. And the devil is not going to stop that. And so what happened? Word got back to Samoa that these poor cannibals, they were still enslaved in their chains and darkness. Still in chains to the devil. And that one of God's servants had been killed. And so what did they do? They sent 100 native Christian Samoans to that island. Men and women that went there. They started a church. And God broke in. And that's the way it works because he comes and seeks and saves the lost. Jesus didn't wait for sinners to come to him, did he? That's what it says in Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and save the lost. And that's what he put in the heart of his people. We can't just leave them there, those people. We're going to go seek them, whatever the cost is. And that's the heart of the Lord Jesus. Because the New Testament, it doesn't teach that Jesus came to give these lost sinners have an opportunity to find the one thing they've always longed for. That's not the, what the Bible teaches. I'm telling you, I've heard it a lot of times, and I'm saying, we just need to understand the Bible teaches there is nobody's looking for God. They don't care. Nobody. No heart desired him, and that's what we have in Isaiah 53, the second and third verse. It says, when we shall see him. There is no beauty in him that we should desire him. The third verse goes on to say he's despised and rejected of men. I mean, that's all of us. It's just not talking about those men that lived back then. That's all of us outside of the grace of God. Despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, you can put your name in there, we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And that is how, how all men, all of us in this room, apart from the grace of God, view our Lord. 
That's just the way what the Bible teaches. But God's grace came seeking you. If you're a Christian, that's what happened because no sinner has ever sought God. And that is what makes grace so amazing. It really is because we didn't care about him. And when people don't care about you, what's your reaction typically? Well, if you're going to be that way, all right, adios, amigo. Isn't that the way most people look at it? If somebody doesn't treat you, and especially when they hate you, it's like, yeah, well, I'm going to avoid you at all costs. So look over at Romans chapter 3. This is not totally unfamiliar territory, I know, but we'll look at it nonetheless. So we're saying there is nobody. God has to seek us. And so in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, it says what? Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? He says, no, and no wise. For we have before proved, that's what he's done in the first two chapters, we've proved that both Jews and Gentiles, everyone, they are all, no one without exception, under sin. And so what does that mean to be under sin? He goes on to explain that as it is written. There is none righteous. No, not how many? No, not one, it says. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. He says it again. There's none that does good. No, not one. And here he goes to describe what they're like. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he says, now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And who may be guilty? All the world without exception may become guilty before God, and therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law, it says what, is the knowledge of sin. So what does it say there in verse 11? How many seek God? It says none, doesn't it? How many do good? <laughs> I mean, how many does it say? It says none. And it goes on to graphically describe our nature as sinners. That's what we have there in verses 13 to 18. That's you and me before conversion, whether you want to admit it or not. I mean, it's not a pretty sight. Not a pretty sight. And where did that nature come from? And I'm saying, I don't know about you, but before we came to know the Lord, I didn't sit there and think, well, this nature, all these things I'm doing. I'm just thinking I'm doing what I want to do. Isn't that the way it was for you? I'm just thinking I'm doing what I want to do. We didn't know. But there's a spirit the Bible teaches us that's working in and through us. And Jesus told the Jews, didn't he? In John, he says, you are of your father, the devil. They were offended. I mean, it was the truth, but they were offended. We're not born of fornication. What are you accusing us of? Oh, I just made him hate him all the more. But he's telling the truth. You are of your father, the devil. And he says, here's your motivation for what you do. The lust of your father, you will do. And that's all of us in here before we became a Christian. Even if you grew up in this church and didn't do drugs and didn't drink and didn't sleep around, you were still in this category. The poison of asp is under your lips. You had lust because there's only one way that can be subdued in any heart that's born into this world, that Adamic nature. That's by the grace of God and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And his spirit change in your heart is the only way it could happen. And so all have been bitten by the serpent. All of mankind has been snake bit by Satan. Did you know that? Everybody has. And all mankind has the venom of sin and death coursing through their bodies and spirit. And so the question is, the question for mankind is, and the question for a sinner that's awakened to where he is, is there a cure? Is there a cure? And God has given one remedy and only one remedy. And what is that? It's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we all know that. Okay, fine. But if you would, turn over to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. So the serpent was in the garden, and the serpent was out in the wilderness. And look what it says there, beginning in verse 4. Numbers 21.4, and it says, it's talking about Israel out in the wilderness, and they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. And here's what they said. Wherefore, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Because there is no bread here. There's no water. And our soul is sick of this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray, Moses, unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, what happened? It says he lived. Now, if you want to hold your finger there and quickly go over to John 3, you can, or you can just listen to me. But Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's explaining the new birth to him. And so part of what he says to Nicodemus has to do with what we just read there in Numbers 21. And he says in verse 11, John 3, 11, Verily, verily, Nicodemus, I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And look what he says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, so he's making a direct correlation here, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him, trusts him, commits their life to him, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. And so back in Numbers 21, the people, they're discouraged because the path they're thinking, the, God, the path God is sending us on is long and it's hard. And listen, they refuse to trust him. They refuse to trust in his guidance in the way he was bringing them. So who did they listen to? Who's getting them discouraged? Who's getting them with their mouths to complain against the Lord? 
the serpent, the devil, isn't he? To speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us out here? We've got no bread, we've got no water, and we are sick of this light bread, they call it. Well, what did God call it? He said it's manna, the perfect food for where they're at. They didn't need to be eating heavy food out there in that hot desert. And the Bible says it's angel's food. I'm telling you, if God sends you down bread, there is no bakery on earth that's going to match that. I'm serious. I mean, that stuff had to taste great, to call it that. So the punishment for listening to the serpent was God said he was going to send in fiery serpents. That's what he did. Fiery means poisonous, deadly. And many people died. And they continued to be bitten, didn't they? Till they finally repented and cried out. And they're suffering. They had to be at different stages. They're not going to die, you know, 30 seconds after they got bit. And so what was the remedy for the people? They confessed their sins, repented, and God in his grace sent help, didn't he? But who were the ones that received that help? Who received that help? Who was the remedy for? It was only for the ones that were bitten, wasn't it? So look there in Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, those are the ones, when he looks upon it, shall live. In verse 9, he made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole like the Lord said. It came to pass, just like the Lord said, that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And so who is the gospel? So we're saying Jesus is a type of that gospel, whosoever believeth in him. So who is the gospel offered to? The hopeless, the helpless, sinners, lost, like you said. It's not for those that feel like they're healthy, is it? And Jesus said, they that are whole, they don't need me. He's talking to the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees. You all... Sitting here, some have never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, the one remedy that God at a great price will see, gave you. Because you don't think you need him for some reason. You don't see how desperate your situation is. You, know, you read Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he graphically displays it. You are just walking over this mesh that could cave in on you at any time, open up and send you into hell. And it's only the grace of God that you're taking a risk and a chance and playing Russian roulette with your soul that it doesn't happen. So he's the one remedy. But those, he says, they that are whole have no need of a physician. You think you don't need me? Well, I didn't come for you. He says, but they that are sick. And Jesus says, here's why I came. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I didn't come for the ones that are righteous. That serpent was not put on the pole for those that were healthy, but for those that were bitten and dying. He said, but I came not for the righteous, but to call sinners to what? To repentance. And so salvation is not for good people. It's not for healthy people, is it? It's for sick people like me and like you. Ungodly people, people that recognize they are dead and dying spiritually, full of sin, worthy of God's judgment of wrath. People that feel that poison of sin in their veins and want to be delivered. That is what's going to make a person repent. 
The Holy Spirit supernaturally brings up that you have been bitten and you'll realize and you're dying. You're as good as dead. Judgment's headed your way. Opens the eyes of us, all of us, to see our true spiritual condition when he's dealing with you. That's what his job is. And causes you to cry out, I've sinned against heaven and I'm going to perish if I'm not helped. Please, Lord. Isn't that what Israel did? We're dying. Moses, please pray for us. Something's got to happen. Back in the 1850s, Charles Spurgeon, he talks about a man. This happened back in this, a true story. A man named Gerling was his name. He's in charge of the reptiles. Charge of the reptiles at the zoological gardens in London. And so one day he had this friend of his that he knew, and the guy's going to Australia. And let's go out drinking, Gerling. Okay. So the two of them go out and they get drunk. And Gerling comes to work drunk to handle the snakes. And so he had seen these Egyptian snake charmers working with these snakes months earlier. And so he decides he's going to try to do some of the things they did. So he takes out this Moroccan venom snake, puts it around his neck, twisting it, playing with the thing. And luckily it didn't bite him. And he's got an assistant that's there. And he's like, for God's sake, put the snake back. But Gerling's like not in his right mind. And he's thinking because that snake didn't bite him, he says, well, I'm inspired. So next, he grabs a cobra. It would have been really cold, and the cobra was barely moving, so Gerling sticks it down his shirt and warms the cobra up in his bosom. Pulls that cobra out and has it in front of his face like that. And he's getting ready, he's going to grab that cobra, and he'd see he's going to spin that cobra around by its tail like that. But before he got a chance to do it, guess what happened? That cobra strikes him right between the eyes. Hits him right there. Blood is streaming down his face. And his assistant sees it happen. He's terrified. He runs. They brought the case to court. He runs away. They bring the case to court. The assistant's like, I was in a daze. I didn't know what to do. And so by the time he finally came to his senses and help finally arrived, Gerling's sitting in his chair. He put the cobra back in its cage, and he looks at the people that had come, and he says, I'm a dead man. And so they rush him to the hospital. Get him to the hospital. First thing that goes, he loses his speech. All he could do was point to his throat and moan. Then his vision failed. And then he couldn't hear anything. And then his pulse kept getting weaker and weaker and weaker and slowed. And within an hour after that snake bit him, he died. He was dead. And all that was left was a little small mark on his nose. But that poison had spread through his body and done its work, and he was a dead man. So the first point of that story is we play with sin. That's what we're playing with. And we're like a drunk man that doesn't realize what he's doing and the risk he's taking. No sense. That's the way sinners are. That's the way we were as sinners. And if we're back in sin now, it'd be the same way. But Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, what if? What if Gerling could have been cured by looking at a brass snake? Wouldn't that have been good news for him? It would have been, wouldn't it? But there was no brass snake for Gerling. Here's the good news for us. Anybody here that has been bitten by the curse of sin, we've got the cross. If you've got disease, we've got the cross to look to. The serpent on the pole that will bring forgiveness and healing. That's what we have. There is a remedy. 
And we're saying it is by the grace of God. Because God did not have to have Moses put that serpent on a pole. He'd have been totally just to let those snakes kill every single one of the murmurers, wouldn't he? And he'd have been totally just not to put Jesus on a pole for us and let every single one of us die. And so the sovereign grace of God provided a cure for the deadly snake bite of sin. We know it says the wages of sin is what? That's the only thing we've earned, the only thing we deserve, the one thing that we've worked for is eternal death. And it's only the grace of God and His free gift. It's a free gift in His love. We're able to live, isn't it? So, you know, there may be a lot of cures for snake bites today. I've heard of people, they get bit by a poisonous snake, they get to the hospital soon enough, and a lot of times they can get them. But listen, Israel's out in the wilderness. There's no cures available for them out there, is there? No cures at all. Many died. And there was only one cure that was available that would work, that serpent on the pole. And they had to look at that serpent. And look, I'm sure to a lot of them it seemed foolish. You know, I'm not going to be the idiot that's looking at this serpent on a pole, staring at that thing, going cross-eyed. I'm not feeling that bad. I got bit. Or, you know, my buddy here... Abraham, he's been sucking the blood out of my leg. I'm feeling all right. I think I'm going to be okay. I'm not that bad. Isn't that what a lot of people say today? I'm just really not that bad. You hear that all the time. I think on the day of judgment, I've done pretty good. I'm honest. I, you know, I'm not ripping people off. I'm not killing anybody. Or they come up with their own remedies. You know, Islam, Buddhism. Atheism is becoming real popular today. That's a real good cure, isn't it? We're just going to deny the reality of what's coming down the pike. But that's the way it is. But listen, the Bible says there is only one cure given, isn't there? One cure, one Savior. There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And that name is what? The Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing I want to look at here before we get done in Numbers 21 is there's a personal element to this. Because the only person who could help the bitten, afflicted sufferer was who? Who's the only one that could help them? Who's the only one? Was it their parents? Was it their friend? Who was it? It was them. Them, right? Their responsibility fell on them. What did it say? They had to look. Everyone that is bitten, when he looked, he shall live had to look and trust the remedy that God had provided that it would work. But that's all it took was a look, a look of faith, and it would work. So you can't be examining how, I don't know, am I right with God? Well, let me see. I, I, haven't, I don't really feel that holy this week. I don't feel that. I mean, they're not looking at themselves, are they? They couldn't do that. They couldn't look at how bad they were progressing or how much better they were all of a sudden feeling. No, they had to keep their look where? On the cross, because that's where the answer is. It has nothing to do with us. Jesus paid it all, as we said the other day. He paid it all. It's not a matter of us paying anything. We can't add anything to what he did. It is finished. It was finished over 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? Our salvation was completely given to us. In the Brooklyn Tabernacle, they used to have a song. It was a great song on one of their albums a few years back, and it was called Only a Look. Love that song. And it's sung by a guy that he was in the gutter. He was in the gutter sleeping with dogs in cars and strung out on drugs. 
And he's the one that symbol it. He came up to the front and hugged him, and he could smell the urine on him and all that. Tremendous. And the guy could sing to boot. And he sang that song, Only a Look at Jesus, Oh, So Bowed Down with Cares. He has promised to defend you, and he will all your burdens share. Only a look, only a look can turn you away from sin. Oh, a look will bring you salvation, eternal, eternal life to win. And I would add healing and deliverance. It's all right there on the cross. The serpent has been judged. He has no power over us anymore. That's what that's telling us. Amen? Isaiah 45, 22, it's the, the Lord said this, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He says, For I am God, and there is none else. And getting back to Spurgeon, that was his testimony of how he got saved. He's 15 years old. He's walking to church by himself, and he gets in a snowstorm. He gets diverted. It's so bad he can't go on. He can't go to the church he was intended to go. So he goes into this primitive Methodist church. And the Methodists, they just let anybody preach that felt like they were called. So they got this layperson preaching. And this guy couldn't preach, Spurgeon said, this substitute. But this guy's text was the one I just quoted, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And Spurgeon went on to say he didn't have much to say, thank God. But... Because he didn't, he said he just kept repeating that verse over and over and over. And he said that was all that was needed for me with where I was. All he needed was that text. And then he said, and this is the way the story is, Spurgeon was sitting in the back. And they said that guy kept saying, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth. And finally he stops. He sees Spurgeon back there. Oh, young man, you look miserable. And he was miserable. And he shouted, Spurgeon said, like only a primitive Methodist could, look, look, young man, look, look now. And Spurgeon said he had a vision when that happened at that point. <laughs> a guy may have been a lay preacher and couldn't preach, but God's hand was on him. And Spurgeon said he had a vision, not one with his eyes, but one in his heart. And he saw his condition, and he saw that there was the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. There's the answer. And he said, I didn't know what it meant to believe, but I knew I believed. And that's what a look is. It's believing. Only a look. He says, I knew what it was to believe, and I did believe in one moment. And here's what he said. He goes, as the snow, he's going home, walking home. He says, as the snow fell on my road home from that little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found, for I was white as the driven snow, and what we're talking about tonight, through the grace of God. And that's what it is. <laughs> He's provided Jesus on the pole, so to speak. And a look will give us all we need. And what I want to look at for the remainder of the time here, when we see the cost of what the cost was for God and His grace for providing that cure, that should be our motivation for living a holy life in a life that pleases Him. So if you would, go back to where we started in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Look what it says there. We'll read it again. What shall we say then to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? And here's the grace of God in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
And there's three things there. The first thing it says, he that spared not his own son. And, <laughs> you know, you look at it like this. Anybody that has more than one kid, which one of the kids would you just do without? Is nobody. I mean, I think about my four kids, and if anything happened to any of those, it would crush me, even if I had three left. But what if you only had one child? What if you only had one and had to give him up? And the language used here about he that spared not his own son is the same language that was used of Abraham when he didn't spare his only son, Isaac. The one he had to trust God for. The one that God miraculously gave him. He could take no credit for that son, but he loved him, didn't he? Oh, he loved him, all right. And he wasn't going to spare him. He was going to take him up in obedience and love to God, laid him on the altar, bound him up. And the son, they're having this conversation. It had to be breaking his heart. How could he do that? And he lifted up the knife, and he wasn't going to spare him. And that was going to hurt, wasn't it? That wasn't going to be a painless death. He was going to drive it into him. And what happens is he gets ready to do that. The angel cries out, no, Abraham, Abraham. You don't have to do that. We see that you fear and love God. Here's the substitute over here. You don't have to kill your son. And he received a substitute. It was found and Isaac was spared. But here's the point of God's grace. For God's own son, guess what? There was no substitute, was there? No substitute. And we think, Abraham, you think you love your children? Our love for our children is nothing compared to the eternal, infinite love of the Heavenly Father for His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Couldn't love Him anymore. Nothing compared to the greatest love we had for our kids. And it says he did not spare him. Isn't that what our verse says? That's the grace of God. He spared not his own son. He didn't spare him from the spitting, from the beating, from twisting in agony on that cross, from having to cry out and listen to his own son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had to listen to that. He didn't spare him the harmless, innocent lamb of God. And why didn't he spare him? Think about it. Why didn't he spare him? Because of his love for you and me. That's the only reason he didn't spare him. He didn't have to send him. Jesus didn't have to come. For God so loved that he gave. He could have given justice and it would have been no tarnish on his character at all. Pure grace, isn't it? Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. And we should all be able to say this that have given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved me and gave himself for me. Let that sink in. Preacher I like named Eric Alexander said, when we see Abraham not sparing Isaac, what do you think when you see that? You think, oh, how he loved God. But he said, when we see God not sparing his own son, then we think, oh, how he loved me. How he loved, you think about it, in that song go, I stand amazed in the presence, Jesus the Nazarene. How could he love a wretch like me? However that song goes, right? Isn't that what it's saying? How could he love me that hated him, that didn't care less about him? And yet he was willing to go through all that when I didn't love him. And the second thing we see there in verse 32, 
it says he gave him up for us all. He gave him up. So Judas, it says, betrayed Jesus. Matthew 26, 15 says, Judas said this to the high priest, what will you give me and I will deliver him? It's the same word, gave up. Same word. And I'll deliver him unto you. The Jewish religious leaders said this. Jesus said this about them in Matthew 20. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over. Same word. They will deliver him up to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But what do we have here in the verse? Who's the one that gave him up? The Father. Isn't it? Isn't that what we see there? He spared not his son, but delivered him up. The Father did that for us all. A man named Winslow said, who delivered up Jesus to die? It wasn't Judas for money. It wasn't Pilate for fear. It wasn't the Jews for envy. It was the Father for love. That's why he gave him up for all of us. And the thing is, if you're sitting in here and you know you've heard this before and you think, I mean, people do have these things about, man, I've sinned away the day of grace. If God's speaking to you tonight, you haven't delivered us for us all. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved, does it? But it means there's nobody out of the realm of being saved. Nobody's gone too far. Nobody's sinned too much. Nobody's been backslidden too long. All it is is you've got to get that look back. Look back. Look unto me all the ends of the earth. Because what does the Bible say? Where sin abounds, what abounds more? God's grace. Oh, we know that doesn't mean he's excusing the way if you're not living right. But you're not living so bad that if you repent and come back to him, his grace will not abound to you. And the last thing it says, so how shall he not with him also freely, graciously, like I said, is the word, give us all things. And he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. So he's saying there is nothing greater than his own son. Nothing greater. He's infinite in all respects. And he's saying if he's willing to do that, he'll freely, graciously give us anything that we need to make it to heaven and serve him in this life. So, if you would, turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. And look what it says. We'll begin in verse 1. 2 Peter 1, 1, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like, and it's precious, like precious faith, trust in God, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God, and of Jesus our Lord. Now look what he says here in verses 3 and 4. According as his divine power has given unto us all things, all things it says, that pertain unto what? Life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these promises... We can be partakers of what? The divine nature. It doesn't get better than that. Having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. And what's he telling us there? He's saying the divine nature, it's holiness. And like I said, people, when you hear holiness, you think straitjacket. That means I can't have any fun. Uh-uh. Saying we've escaped, that's just corruption. You say, I want to be happy. I don't want to be holy. Oh, no, you don't know what happiness is. Because only the holy are happy. 
That's the way it is. And that's the greatest gift he can give us. So I'll just look up at the top of my page. You may have to turn a page, but back at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 10, look what it says there. But the God of all what? What we're talking about tonight. The God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Well, what does that involve? After that you have what? Suffered a while. He'll make you through that perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Mm. They're like, wow, I like the first part of that, unto eternal glory. I don't like to hear suffering. I've heard a lot of that. I want to hear about that. Well, that's what it says right there. Because that's how he will do a work in us. And if you'll turn back to 1 Peter 1, and I'm saying God has called us. That's what we're called to, a life of holiness. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16, and it says, you say you're a child of God and he's your father. It says, verse 14, as obedient children, then don't fashion yourselves according to the way you lived before, according to the way the world lives. Not fashioning yourselves according to your former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, what does the Bible say? So be ye holy in all manner of conduct or conversation or lifestyle. Every way we live, we're called to be holy if we're God's children. Isn't that what it says? Verse 16, because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. So God does a work in us because he wants us to partake of his divine nature. And when it's talking about that, it's talking about his holiness. And one time when we teach on holiness, it's not a straitjacket by any means. It really isn't. It's true freedom. It's true peace. It's true joy. That's where it's all found. And so just turn back a little bit more to Hebrews 12. And that's what it's saying there. Hebrews 12, 5, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as, here again, unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Why? For whom the Lord loves, he does what? He chastens and scourges everybody that's his child, every son whom he receives. I think scourging talks a little bit about suffering, don't you? I mean, I never got a spanking from my dad and wouldn't have said I didn't suffer a little bit. Amen? I suffered a little bit. Yeah, it hurt. And that's what he says there. He says, everybody's going to get that, every son. If you endure it, verse 7, though, God will deal with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, if you don't suffer, if you don't have chastisement, wherefore all are partakers, then you're, we'll say, illegitimate. Isn't that what it says? And not sons. He says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. We gave them reverence. And he says, how much more should we be subject unto the father of spirits and what? And live. Verse 10, for they, our earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. In other words, they got to get you in line. But why does God do it? Strictly for the second part. He does it for our profit, that we might be partakers of his what? It's our profit to be holy and to partake of that. Because anyways, it goes on. We'll, we'll just go on and read it. And look what it says. He goes, because no chastening for the present when it's going on seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, when it's all over, 
Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, because of that, hey, God's spanking you. He says, lift up your hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths. Get your life straightened out for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, and but let it rather be healed. Because he says, verse 14, we better be following two things here. Following peace with all men. And what else do we need to be following? Because without those two things and without holiness, guess what won't happen? You will not see the Lord, and that means you will not see heaven. So, Ian Murray has a lot of good things to say. I like Ian Murray. And he said this, he said, God drove man out of paradise. Why did he drive him out of paradise? Because that was not the place for fallen sinners to be. Because if they'd have been in paradise, the prosperity would have made them more wicked. And that is shown by the Laodicean church. They had prosperity and everything's going their way. And they said, we have no need of nothing. And God says, oh, no, that's ruining you all. You don't see your poor, wretched, blind, miserable, naked. You're terrible shape. The prosperity wasn't doing them any good. And Murray said that what fallen man, a sinner needs is discipline, trials, suffering to draw them to God. And so it can appear, he says, you read Genesis with all the curses placed on Adam and Eve and the serpent that this world's just under judgment. He's saying, no, God is actually in his grace put us in a world to mold our characters. And that's what it is. And so listen to these Psalms if you don't like what I said or believe it. Psalm 119.67, the psalmist wrote, Before I was afflicted, he did what? I went astray. But now I have kept thy word. Before I was afflicted, what did that affliction do? It caused him to get back right with God. And a few verses later, Psalm 119.71 Listen to this. It is good, the psalmist says, for me that I have been afflicted. Have any of us ever said that? It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. That's what the Bible says. So God, here, we need to see his grace in this. That he takes our afflictions, our chastisement, and does what in his grace? turns them into blessings. Paul prayed three times, if you remember, in 2 Corinthians, that God would remove his thorn in the flesh, and it wasn't sickness. It was probably the Judaizers just giving him trouble and stoning him and beating him and all of that. All of what he sees is coming for holding on and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times he prayed that, and what was God's answer? So what are we talking about tonight? The grace of God. And what was God's answer to him? He says, my grace is sufficient for thee. And he's saying, Paul, all of this is what you're going through. I'm doing a work in you that I can't do any other way. And it's the world treating him bad, isn't it? Isn't that what's going on with Paul? My grace is sufficient for thee, he says, because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And that's where Paul was brought through all of what he went through. None of us have gone through what he went through. But through that, when he despaired even of life, it says at one point, when he got stoned. And yet he said he learned that not to trust in himself, but to trust in the grace of God. So it appears bad, but yet it's for his good. And that's what it says. When God told him that, 
<laughs> my grace is, I'm not taking it away. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul didn't say, man, what kind of answer is that? You're making my life miserable. I'm about, about how I can stand. I'm ready to quit. Is that what Paul said? Hmm. Here's what he said. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. He's, he's crazy, isn't he? I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. He's crazy. Or is he crazy? He says, I take pleasure in those things. <laughs> because he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's God's grace. And we don't look at all the trouble coming our way as this God's grace doing a work in me, but we need to, don't we? And it's tough sometimes. Isn't it? But we sing of the grace of God, and we should, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Because His grace found us guilty sinners, and instead of giving us what we deserve, He sought us and caused us to see our sin and cry out for mercy. And then He points us to the cross. Here's the solution. Here's the remedy. Just look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not a one-time thing, is it? Anytime we miss it, that's where we need to look. That's where our hope and our help is. And so we look and commit our lives to Him, and that's what happened just like with the Israelites. We live. We're healed. We're delivered. That's what happens. And we'll end with this. There's a song. If I could play it and sing it, I would. Grace greater than all our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's a flowing, a crimson tide. Free from all sin, you may be today. And the chorus says, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, and we can't express it enough. The thankfulness we have for the grace that you have shown us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross and what he endured on our behalf and the fact that you gave up your only beloved son just out of love for us. I'd ask, Lord, that you'll help us to understand that, open our hearts and our understanding that we can see how great your love is. And if you wouldn't withhold him, you won't withhold anything else, Lord, for our good. And we're so thankful that you're that way. It has helped to make that a motivation for us to live holy lives that will please you. And we thank you for this, Lord, and for speaking to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.